بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So before we start inshallah ta'ala just a couple of things to let you know about Firstly this is the last day of module 3 um And as is we have done in previous modules, the exam for module three will be at the beginning of module four. So we won't be having an exam today, alhamdulillah, you'll be pleased to know about that. Uh, but inshallah ta'ala, we'll be having the exam at the beginning of module four. Uh, I don't have the date for the start of module four, uh, only because I would like to check it with uh, the Kalima uh, management guys, but inshallah, I'm sure they will announce it uh, via their email list and also via the website uh, which uh, you have. So inshallah, it'll be announced inshallah. Um, obviously, one thing I can tell you for sure is that it will not start uh, until, you know, we're looking at the beginning of January because realistically, we're away now uh, with the kids in Montenegro for uh, a week after this. And by the time we get back and what have you, so you know, I would expect that we're looking at, you know, so, so probably the, maybe perhaps the first week in January, something like that. But we we don't know for sure. It may be delayed beyond that because obviously, we want to also uh, finish before Ramadan, Module Four. And uh, I don't know. Perhaps Module Four might be the last module that I I, I take with you guys. I don't know. Um, because officially, I mean, like that's uh, I mean that's. Uh, Something that we're looking at, yani, me personally, Ramadan. So, uh, you know, module module four, I think we would aim definitely to finish it by by Ramadan, inshallah. Uh, of course, essentials is, is planned to continue for eight modules, but uh, maybe me personally, it might be, and maybe module four, maybe the uh, the last of them for me personally. Um, what I said we would do in module four is we will continue a because I really want to finish it so we will I think the first part of module four the first four weeks we'll do the second half of the poem so that we can say that we've done it and also bear in mind that you guys who are memorizing the poem um, inshallah at some point in January I'll, I'll give you guys a, a message and see who wants to come and, and read the poem or read as much of it as they've memorized inshallah uh, and that will be sometime in January. The last announcement that I have is <coughs> I'm running a little late on a couple of exam results. Uh, inshallah, in the break between module three and module four, I'm going to get those all up to date. Um, so I set myself a project of getting my emails up to date, uh, which uh, for me is sometimes a big job. Uh, so that's been taken, that's taken nearly a month and to get uh, those up to date. There's a, around about 500 yani, or so. Uh, so once those are done, we go to Montenegro, come back. Those exam results, the, you know, the, the marks for the, uh, the coursework and all that stuff will all be assigned, inshallah. So hopefully we'll be fully up to date by the time we start module four, inshallah ta'ala. So just a couple of announcements before we make a start. <coughs> We were discussing 
what the poet said. He said, Then after that came his marriage to Sauda in Ramadan, followed by his marriage to the daughter of a Siddiq in Shawwal. We mentioned that these two things happened very close together uh, and it is mentioned in the books of the seerah that they happened because of one of the companions the female companions anha, suggesting that the Prophet وسلم, get remarried and this was either two years or three years uh, prior to the hijrah approximately The first marriage to actually take place, even though it's said that the, the khitbah, the invitation or the, um, I don't, it's not right to call it an engagement because it's not, it's not what we would understand as an engagement, but the process of discussing marriage. Um, you know, I, I don't, people would use the word courtship, but that sounds too much like a relationship is there. And people would use, you know, the word like, engagement and that's not quite right so if you guys have a better word you're welcome to suggest one proposal yeah okay that might work any the 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 thing with the khutbah is involves it comes from the same origin as the word khutbah like you're going to actually basically give a you know almost like a speech but your speech is is basically proposing proposing marriage um so the the proposal took place at a very similar time. We know that Abu Bakr delayed a little bit while he found out the ruling of the Prophet ﷺ marrying Aisha, not because of her age, but because of his relationship with Abu Bakr. Like, did the fact that he and Abu Bakr were, were in everything but blood brothers, you know, they were brothers in everything but blood. Did that mean that it was okay for the Prophet ﷺ to marry Aisha and the Prophet ﷺ explained that no matter how close your brotherhood is in Islam it doesn't make the, the female family members into a mahram so we know that there are three things that make someone a mahram they are blood ties of certain kinds breastfeeding with certain rules and uh, marriage uh, for certain people. So as an example in marriage, the husband becomes a mahram for his wife and for his mother-in-law. And when he consummates the marriage, he becomes a mahram for the daughters of his wife from previous marriages. But that's after the marriage is consummated, not at the time of the nikah. As for the mother-in-law, she becomes a mahram at the time of, at the time of the nikah. Uh, as for the blood ties, uh, 
this is well well known to you guys. Uh, for example, in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمْ أُمَّهَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُكُمْ and so on. وَخَوَاتُكُمْ وَخَالَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُ الْأَخِي وَبَنَاتُ الْأُخْتِ So from them are, of course, the mother and onwards, meaning the mother, the mother's mother, the father's mother, and, you know, and so on. Yani the mother and all of the grandmothers and great-grandmothers upwards. And the daughter and you know all of the granddaughters any yani the daughter and the daughter's daughter and the son's daughter and so on <clears throat> and any sisters that the the brother may have whether they are full sisters or half sisters any yani whether they are sisters from his mother or sisters from his father and ammatukum wa khalatukum any the uh, the sisters of his father and the sisters of his mother. And that includes upwards also, the sisters of his grandmother and the sisters of his uh, grandfather on both sides, any mother's side and father's side. Uh, and likewise, the daughters of his brothers and sisters, whether they are his half-brothers or full-brothers. It does not include the cousin. Remember, the cousin is the daughter, a female cousin, is the daughter <coughs> of your uh, uncle or aunt. And they are not included in what makes them a mahram. We'll hear the Prophet ﷺ married uh, one of his, uh, his cousins, radiallahu uh, ta'ala anha. We'll come to this, inshallah, in the time. As for breastfeeding, then everything that is made haram by blood is made haram by breastfeeding. If, as long as the child is of feeding age, that means it doesn't apply to a 30-year-old or something like that. Like, as long as the child is of feeding age, any the child is within the first two years of their life, and they have five full or five separate feedings, any five individual feedings, then at this time, whatever would become, yani that person takes the same place as the mother and all the ties of blood that would be related to the mother, her, her sisters, her daughters, and so on, become mahram in the same way that the blood ties become. And that's why, yani on a side note, it can be a useful consideration um, for those people who maybe are worried about um, you know, for example, they live in a joint family and they're worried about a boy and a girl who are effectively, you know, cousins or whatever, uh, growing up together. You know, it's something to consider. If they're both born around a similar time, it is, it's quite possible for one of the, you know, the mothers to feed the other child uh, at the age of feeding and then to have that child effectively become a full brother to that girl. If that is you know, if you're living in that kind of situation, or if you feel worried about a particular relationship, and it doesn't need to be done for every child, because of course, once he becomes a, a brother to that girl, he's also a brother to her sisters as well. So, you know, there are like there is a use for it. It's in it's a, it's a, it's not just something that was done at the time of the Arabs, but it's something that seriously, you know, those people who are worried about certain, especially when they have maybe some 
you know, non-practicing relatives and what have you, and they're particularly worried about those interactions. And it's something that people can, you know, discuss and think about. But of course, that would rule out, you know, for those who are thinking about marriages later on, in terms of between the cousins, that would, that would rule that out. So, but it is, it is something that is uh, any worth considering in certain limited circumstances for certain people. Where it's possible, it's not always possible, but it's certainly something that is any worth considering. <clears throat> the reason we mentioned this is back to Abu Bakr. And that Abu Bakr, radiallahu an, wanted to know if his closeness to the Prophet وسلم, would prohibit the Prophet وسلم, from marrying Aisha radiallahu anha. And of course, uh, the Prophet وسلم, made it clear that no matter how close you are in Islam or how much you see a person as your brother, unless they are your blood brother or your brother through ties of breastfeeding, they are not considered to be your true brother for the purpose of the ties that make people a mahram. And that's important because a lot of us in this day and age will say things about our cousins like, Wallah, she's my sister. She's, I see her like my sister. But it doesn't matter how much you see her like your sister. It doesn't matter how much you are, how close you are and how much you see her as your sister. If you don't have those blood ties or those feeding ties that link you together, there's no prohib prohibition for marriage in this instance. And that means that you have to, you know, she has to keep a hijab and you have to keep your distance and so on and so forth. No matter how much you see her as a, you know, as a sister. Of course, the Prophet did not see Aisha as, you know, like as a, as a daughter figure and she did not see him as a father figure. But he saw Abu Bakr as though he was like a blood brother. You know, he was so close to him that Abu Bakr wanted to check, you know, if we are that close, does that fact that I see you as my brother prohibit you from marrying Aisha? And the Prophet ﷺ explained that this is not the case. How authentic is this report? Um, it's certainly mentioned in reliable books of seerah, but as you know, the seerah itself is not, is not you know, with the highest authenticity. I can't promise you that it has an authentic chain of narration, but it's certainly mentioned in the reliable books of seerah that it happened that way. And we know for certain that the Prophet ﷺ married Sauda first of all, that happened in Ramadan, and then in the, the Shawwal, the month after Ramadan, he married Aisha. Now, Sauda, uh, anha, she had been previously married, she is Sauda, bintu Zam'ah, ibn Qaysin al-Qurashiyyah, radiyallahu anha wa ardaha, ummul mu'mineen. And Sauda, she was married to As-Sakran ibn Amr, radiyallahu anhu ardah. And she made hijrah to Al-Habasha. So Sauda and As-Sakran ibn Amr, radiyallahu anhuma, they made hijrah together, husband and wife, to Al-Habasha. But what happened was that uh, they came back and they stayed in Mecca uh, after the hijrah. Uh, they came back to Mecca, and As-Sakran uh, ibn Amr radiallahu anhu passed away. And Sauda was left without a husband. She was, obviously, she had, you know, in terms of her iman, she was an exemplary Muslim. 
uh, and everybody knew uh, of her you know, good character and her practicing of Islam and how much she had suffered for believing in Islam. And that is why it was suggested to the Prophet ﷺ that he should marry her. And notice that there was no, you know, there was no, there was no sort of, uh, there was no kind of uh, negative feeling about marrying uh, a divorcee. And that's another thing that I think we can learn and it's very important. That wallahi, I mean, now in these days it's very, very hard for women who have been previously married uh, to, to get married again. And that's not always the case, you know, maybe if they're, if they're quite young, but, you know, especially if they're older, it's pretty hard for them to get remarried. And often they live in a pretty difficult situation. You know, their husband passed away or they, uh, you know, they got divorced. They might have children and they live in a pretty, a pretty tough situation. And, and that's what we understand from the seerah was the situation of Sauda. The situation was really difficult. You know, she needed to remarry. And yet the Prophet ﷺ was not looking for a marriage for the sake of uh, for f sort of, you know, fulfillment of, you know, what people might say, you know, he just wants to get married or whatever. You know, he's, he is looking at what's good for his community as well and what's good for the people around him. Because at the end of the day, if the Prophet ﷺ wanted to marry young virgin girls, that's not difficult for him. He just has to... You know, he just has to say, and every, you know, every family that has a, a young girl who's looking to get married is going to marry them to the Prophet ﷺ, let's be honest. But instead, the Prophet ﷺ is not looking for that. His first choice in marriage after Khadija, first of all, Khadija radiallahu anha, who was, had been married previously, and second, and that was his first marriage, salawatullahi uh, wa and his second marriage is to a woman who, again, her husband has passed away. She's not in the peak of her, her youth. She's not uh, a young girl. And uh, she has been previously married. And yet the Prophet ﷺ doesn't see that to be any sort of taboo or any sort of issue. Because he's not interested in the dunya. There's not, not that he said, because he said that from the dunya Allah has made beloved to me women and perfume. And there's, not any, there's nothing wrong with that. But that wasn't his primary motivation. And this is important because it's a strong response to those people who take the marriage of Aisha out of context. And they say that this is a, you know, an older man who by now is in his 50s and you know, he just basically wants to marry a really young girl. Why marry Sauda? Why marry Khadija? Why marry Hafsa? You know, all of the other wives of the Prophet ﷺ, why marry? None of them were, or very few of them, were known for their, for their beauty. Like very few of them were known to be very, very beautiful or very well known in the society. Very, very, of course, only Aisha was, uh, had not been previously married. And when you look at that, really, you, you, you don't get the picture that the enemies of Islam paint of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, it, it doesn't match that character. This is a man who is marrying uh, older women who have been previously married, who don't have anyone to look after them, who often have children. And, you know, he's, he's, he's marrying, you know, the least, uh, the, the least kind of, uh, if you like, in terms of the dunya, the least attractive option. Uh, and it's not the case that he's running after, you know, young girls or that he's running after girls that have never been married before or whatever. And, and, you know, that kind of tells the character of the Prophet 
that this, his marriages were marriages for the dunya and the akhirah. They were marriages for the dunya and for the akhirah. And from the, the, the things that we know about Sauda is that as Sauda became older and, you know, as uh, she got older, she became less inclined towards uh, sort of, if you like, or she became concerned about the issues of the marriage that maybe, you know, perhaps even the Prophet ﷺ might divorce me because I'm older now and, you know, like, she didn't have, doesn't have the same motivation, the same kind of, you know, desire for, for intimacy and so on that, that existed when she was younger. And so uh, there came a time within her life when she gave her day to Aisha, radiallahu anha, uh, because she knew how much the Prophet ﷺ loved to stay with Aisha. And she gave her day to, uh, to Aisha. And the Prophet ﷺ would not have divorced her. The Prophet ﷺ would not have divorced her. But she felt like, you know, she started to feel sort of somewhat inadequate in that sense. Like, you know, she's an older woman and she doesn't have the same sort of, you know, motivation and the same sort of feelings that she had when she was younger. And she says, you know, now I think, you know, I, I want to be your wife in Jannah. I don't want to be your wife. You know, it's not the dunya doesn't matter to me. So she said that she would give up her, her night for Aisha. And the Prophet still went to see her in turn as he did with all of his wives. But instead of staying the night with her, he would stay the night with Aisha uh, anha. And that was later on during the time in Medina. And that also gives us a ruling from that, the permissibility of a wife foregoing some of her rights uh, if she wishes. And she can forego some of her rights, whether that's the right to separate accommodation or whether that's the right to sharing a particular night with her husband or so on. Uh, that if there's a need in that and a maslaha in that, and Allah uh, revealed that there is no harm, uh, you know, if and if there is a woman who fears from her husband that he might turn away from her then there is no harm and for there to be a sulh between them an agreement between them whereby they maybe you know sort of re rework the marriage but they you know they stay married uh, and there is no and there is you know uh, making sort of agreements between people is something good. And that was revealed regarding Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha wa ardaha. As for Aisha radiallahu anha, she, the difference between the marriage of Sauda and the marriage of Aisha was of course that Aisha was too young to stay with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi And alhamdulillah in our religion, as we said, we have very robust uh, a very robust set of laws and rules about when people can marry. And the simple rule is that uh, the marriage contract is one thing and living together is another thing. And the rule that the scholars are fairly agreed upon, more or less, is that the age at which a woman can live with her husband is the age in which she is mentally and physically ready for that. That is the age. And Islam doesn't put a, a number on that because let's be honest, the number changes from, from country to country, from people to people, from circumstance to circumstance, and from age to age and century to century. That number will change. There's, maybe today that number is 18. Maybe, you know, in 200 years' time, who knows, that might be, might be 25. I don't know. 
you know, like, but at the end of the day, Islam doesn't put a number on it because that number would not work for all people in all ages, in all times. Islam says when she is mentally and physically ready. And most people, you would say, are, are physically ready from the age of puberty onwards, although that's not a condition in Islam. The ulama don't put puberty as a condition, but they say that she should be mentally and physically capable of that and it should not cause her harm because the Prophet said لا ضرر ولا ضرر. there is no harm for, towards anyone else nor should there be any reciprocating harm so there should be no harm in that and as we know and another strong refutation for those people who criticize the marriage of the Prophet to Aisha is very simply that show me the harm we say to them, you know, you, you know, you have your nice, you know, liberal agenda regarding the nice age of, you know, that uh, of 18, even though your own children are not abiding by this age. But never mind. And you have this nice age of 18, which you have, you know, stamped on a piece of paper. And you've said that anything below that is, you know, an abuse against the child. Show me the harm. Bring me a list of the characteristics of child abuse. So generally, a, an abused child will be introvert. They will be struggle with social interactions with other people. Uh, they'll often have uh, various psychological or, you, or, you know, sort of uh, things relating to their nafs, you know, illnesses and things like that. And you can see these on, on you know, like we, we do like sort of training sometimes on spotting children that are being abused. And spotting children that are being abused, you know, you can see from this, 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 this. Show me even one that applies to Aisha. You can't find it. Not even one. And he, by all of the standards that we have, the modern standards of basically checking and testing whether a child is in a safe situation and whether a child is developing in the right way, you can't find a single one of them that applies to her. You can't find a single thing that says that Aisha suffered any harm whatsoever neither physically nor mentally nor emotionally and you know that Aisha had a very strong character عنها. she was the favorite wife and she was very very she, she, had, she, she loved her husband immensely uh, he loved her so, and, and you can see the way that she interacts She's very, you know, socially strong. She's in charge among the other wives. You know, like she gets to tell what happens. You know, she's, uh, you know, after his death, she becomes a teacher, uh, a scholar. Uh, she even, you know, got to the point in one point in her life where she led an army. None of these things are characteristic of, uh, you know, a child who has suffered at a young age and that she was hurt so much and traumatized and, you know, that, that really if she was living in this time, she would have been diagnosed with, you know, PTSD or something like that, you know, that post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. That's absolute rubbish. You just look at the life of Aisha, this is a life of a very, very happy, confident person. And so we say that whatever, you, you know, an individual thinks about the marriage of Aisha, you have to bring me a harm. Like to tell me that this is wrong, you have to bring me a harm. Not, you know, that it offended your, you know, sensitivities. I'm not really bothered about that. But, you know, you bring me something that shows that Aisha was physically or mentally harmed in any way, anything. 
even just, you know, like something that in, may indicate that. Absolutely nothing at all. Aisha herself was thoroughly, thoroughly happy with the marriage. And the people at that time did not consider this to be a problem. The enemies of Islam used to insult the Prophet ﷺ about so many things. But they never insulted him regarding his marriage to Aisha. So we say that this was a marriage that was blessed by Allah at the same time. We also say, does that mean that that is a suitable age to marry your daughter of today? Islam doesn't say that. Because at the end of the day, I don't think today in most places in the world, probably anywhere in the world, you can get a nine-year-old girl who is physically and mentally ready for marriage. Probably. I don't think that's, I don't think that's likely. Uh, but again, am I going to frown because someone married their daughter at 14 years old in a country which allows that and it's not against the law? Why, why should I frown upon that? If, that was, if she was ready for that and if that didn't hurt her mentally or physically, then why, you know, why should we put an age that doesn't make sense to apply it to everybody? So hopefully that gives you some idea about the marriage of Aisha. Uh, of course, at six years old, they did the, uh, the or Abu Bakr gave her away in marriage. But of course, at this time, she doesn't live with the Prophet because she's too young. Uh, and that's another interesting evidence against those people who criticize the marriage of Aisha. That if the Prophet were, had those inclinations that they accuse him of, then why not live with Aisha from six years old, seven years old, eight years old? Why, why wait? Why wait until she's nine years old? What's the, you know, if, you, if, if a person is that way inclined, surely the mentality of those people is the younger the better. Like, why, why wait? And the Prophet says, he can do whatever he wants. If he says to Abu Bakr, she has to live with me now, Abu Bakr is not going to say no. I mean, at the end of the day, this is, you know, this, this is the Prophet ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ waits three years. Three full years before living with Aisha. And that shows also yani, a, a refutation of those people who criticize this marriage. And at the end of the day, trying to apply situations in other countries, to, uh, in other places, for other people, to our situation today is very, 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 very foolish indeed. Because it just doesn't, I mean, you only have to look at the difference between a hundred years ago and today, and you can see like the difference between the heavens and the earth. You know, I, I mean, people, it's based on that argument that the people make that now we've become so much more enlightened, you know, like that, yeah, you know, a hundred years ago we were living in the dark and now we've become so much more enlightened, you know. But the reality is that, that uh, you can't apply the, the circumstances in one country, in one place, for one particular girl, in one particular country, in one particular place, in one particular century, and then, you know, copy-paste that into 2017. You have to see it in the light of the time that it was in, and in the light of the situation that it was in, and in the light of that specific man and that specific than that specific woman. Because the Prophet ﷺ was no ordinary man, and Aisha radiallahu anha was no ordinary woman. So you can't, you can't just you know, copy-paste those things. It's, that's why Islam doesn't set an age. Because if Islam said 15 or 16, there are some girls who are not suitable to get married at 15, 16. There are some girls who are, who are not suitable to get married yani, when they're 18, 19. 
specific to the individual, to the circumstances, to the place, and to the needs and to the, you know, the, the, the urf of the community. And as Allah Azza wa said, وَأْمُرْ بِالْعُرْفِ وَأَعْرِضْ عَنِ الْجَاهِلِينَ Command people to follow the customs. And one of the meanings of وَأْمُرْ بِالْعُرْفِ Command people to follow the customs. And those customs that don't contradict Islam. وَأَعْرِضْ عَنِ الْجَاهِلِينَ And turn away from the ignorant. As for the specific or the unique qualities of Aisha radiallahu anha, they are many. From them is that she was the most beloved of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ to him. In fact, to the point that when the Prophet ﷺ was asked, who do you love the most? He responded, Aisha. They said, and from the men, he said, her father. From them is that he only, she was the only virgin that he married, radiallahu ta'ala anha wa And from them is that revelation descended to the Prophet while he was in the same, uh, the same blanket and under the same blanket as Aisha. And that is a very, that is, that is an extremely, extremely high status to have. Uh, and from them uh, also uh, that uh, Jibreel, uh, although this is not unique to Aisha radiallahu anha, but she's one of the people whom Jibreel uh, gave salam to. And one of the people whom she, uh, Jibreel came to the Prophet وسلم, and he gave his salam to Aisha uh, ta'ala anha. And of course the story of Al-Ifq, which we will come to uh, perhaps uh, later on. And the fact that revelation came down regarding Aisha in, in several ayat, several different places in the Quran, uh, particularly in Surah An-Nur regarding uh, the story of Al-Ifq and what happened in that. From them is that she is the, or she was the most knowledgeable of the wives of the Prophet And there is no doubt about this. Rather, some of the scholars said that if you were to add together the knowledge of all of the wives of the Prophet it would not compare with the knowledge of Aisha. And from them is that the Prophet chose to pass away while his head was resting on her chest. Uh, as she said, the Prophet ﷺ died while his head was on the upper part of her, on her, the upper part of her chest. So he was, he was lying on Aisha when he passed away. And that again is a huge honor for Aisha radiallahu anha. We know that the Prophets والسلام, uh, they and when they pass away, they only pass away in the most, you know, in the best of circumstances, in the best of places. And uh, for him to choose to die in that place at that particular, you know, in that particular situation, is, it shows the great virtue of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha wa ardaha. So just to link these lines of poetry because we stopped the, the line of poetry. So we said Aqtubnati Siddiqi fi Shawali wa ba'da khamsin wa ba'da khamsina amin tali. Wa ba'da khamsina wa amin tali. That's better. I made it 50 years and it should be 50 days and a year. Wa ba'da khamsina wa amin tali. 
usri bihi was salawatu furidat khamsan bi khamsina kama kama qad hufidat so after the marriage to aisha after 50 Or, my, okay, I'll do that again. Let's try that again. After 51 years, I was writing 51 years in the first place. After 51 years of his age, after 51 years, yani in his age, salawatullahi wa salamu having gone by, he was taken on the night journey and taken up in the mi'raj to the heavens and the five daily prayers were made obligatory. Five prayers equal to 50 as it has been memorized. So this is after the Prophet ﷺ reaches the age of 51 years old. Ibn al-Jawzi, he said, when the Prophet ﷺ reached the age of 51 years old and nine months, the, the journey of the, the night journey happened. So this is when the Prophet ﷺ reached the age of 51 years old and nine months. He was taken on Al-Isra. And Al-Isra is a journey that is made at night. And this journey, it was from Mecca, Al-Mukarramah, to Bayt Al-Maqdis in a single night. And as you know, the distance approximately any, between uh, Mecca and Jerusalem, it's not a short distance at all. And the Prophet ﷺ did so in a single night. And it was from Bayt al-Maqdis after he led the prophets in prayer that the Prophet ﷺ was raised up to the heavens until he reached above the seventh heaven. And he reached a Sidratul Muntaha. So, as you know, there is a tree that grows in, in Jannah. And if I'm not mistaken, all this is from memory, it starts growing at the fourth, the fourth heaven or something like that. Like it's, it starts lower. And the upper part of it finishes at the very, very top of the seventh heaven. And it is known as As-Sidratul Muntaha. And at this point, Jibreel, who had been accompanying the Prophet ﷺ, said, I am not permitted to go beyond this point. I mean, this is only for you. Uh, and the Prophet ﷺ went to the place that he was taken beyond that point, the place where no other of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's any creation from the, from the men or the jinn or the angels uh, were allowed to go. And the Prophet ﷺ in that place, that most honorable of places, the prayer was made obligatory for him. Uh, the five daily prayers. What does that tell you about the status of the prayer? It tells you that the prayer is something which has an extremely high status an extremely high status in the sight of Islam. That these prayers, remember the Prophet ﷺ at this time was praying two rakah obligatory. 
And the prayer was, there were two raka'at of prayer, obligatory prayer, which he was taught when, from, the, from almost among the first days that he became a prophet. But the formalization of these five daily prayers happens in a place which is the most noble of the places the Prophet had ever, had ever, had ever been. And uh, that gives you the value of the prayers. And those prayers are equal to 50 prayers. Those five prayers are equal to, uh, to 50 prayers. And as we know, the Prophet ﷺ was originally given 50 prayers for his ummah in every day. And when he descended, he went by Musa السلام, and Musa advised him to go back and to ask Allah to lighten the situation for his ummah. Why? Because Musa said, my experience with Bani Israel is that you will not be able to do it. So the Prophet ﷺ went back. And this happened more than once. Until when it was made five prayers, Musa again said, go back and ask your Lord to reduce it. And the Prophet ﷺ was shy to go back and ask again. And that is because Allah Azza wa had decreed these five prayers was the correct number. And that it was doable. Allah does not burden a person beyond their scope. And so the prayers or a voice spoke and said that five prayers with the reward of 50. And there are five prayers, but the reward of them is 50 prayers and this also tells us that the prayer is a fundamental part of Islam the Prophet said the difference between us and them is the prayer and whoever leaves it has disbelieved and as you know the scholars differed over whether the person who leaves the prayer is a believer or not. With the stronger opinion, and the opinion that's narrated from the, from the majority of the Sahaba, if not from all of the Sahaba, عنهم, is that the one who leaves the prayer is kafir murtad, is a disbeliever and an apostate. And the scholars differed over how many prayers they have to leave to become an apostate. But the Sahih is one prayer. And the Sahih is one prayer. A person who deliberately leaves one prayer leaves the religion of Islam. And this is how serious the matter of the prayer is. This is how serious the matter of the prayer is. And that doesn't mean we don't treat them as a Muslim. And many of the scholars said, uh, from them, Sheikh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, that we treat them with the mu'amala of the munafiq. In other words, we treat them as a Muslim Zahiran, while believing that if they die like this, they will die as an apostate. If they die in this way. And so some of the scholars said this, not all of them, but 
But some of the scholars said that we treat them with the mu'amala, yani the, the, the action of the munafiq. In other words, we, we accept their Islam in the open sense while believing that their Islam will not be accepted from them by Allah Azza wa Jal if they continue to miss the prayers. So wallahi, ikhwan, this is not a, it's not a light issue. And I know some of you will not take that opinion and that's okay because not all of the scholars took that opinion. But the Jamhur from the Malikiyah and the Shafi'iyah and the Hanabila said that leaving the prayer is, it deserves capital punishment. And you deserve to be killed for leaving the prayer. Look at the severity. Yani the, the, even the Shafi'iyah and the Malikiyah who said that you don't leave Islam, they still said that the person who leaves that one prayer should be executed. Yani look at the severity. Look at the, at the harshness when it comes to the prayer. And what did the Prophet as he was dying, he said, As-salah, as-salah, the prayer, the prayer. Wallahi, Juan, this is not a light issue. The prayer is the difference between us and the non-Muslims. And even if you don't believe that the prayer takes you outside, leaving the prayer takes you outside of Islam, or you take the opinion that as long as you pray at least some of the prayers, you're still a Muslim, as some of the scholars said, and as long as you, like for, from them, Shaykh ibn Taymiyyin, rahimahullah ta'ala, who said that as long as he, the person prays like in some form, even if he just prays twice a day, or th at least the person still prays and you can say that they're still a Muslim. But the point is, look at what we're discussing. We're discussing ridda, apostasy, for the sake of people leaving the prayers. And the scholars are arguing, is he kafir or not kafir? Not is he sinful or not sinful? Look at how serious this issue is. Look at how serious this thing is. That Allah Azza wa Jal revealed this to the Prophet ﷺ in the most noble of places, in the most noble of situations, the most noble of circumstances. And the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba, the Sahaba used to be of the opinion that if we missed someone in the jama'ah in Fajr, we used to accuse him of nifaq. We used to say he's a munafiq. Look at the, look at the situation that we are in. Some of the Sahaba said we never considered anything, leaving anything to take you out of Islam except the prayer. And look at the severity of the words that are reported from the Prophet ﷺ. From the Sahaba, the Prophet ﷺ said between a person and between shirk and kufr is leaving the prayer. And look at, that, look at the level of severity here. The Sahaba saying, you know, we missed a person in the Fajr prayer. In our eyes, this is not a Muslim anymore. It's very severe. This issue is very severe. And it, like I said, I'm not imposing that opinion upon you. Yani. But what I'm saying to you is recognize the severity of this issue. When you start playing with your prayers and messing around with your prayers and delaying them and work is important and wallahi, I can't pray on time. And you know, you are playing with your religion, your Islam. You're not playing with a few good deeds here and there. You are putting your religion at risk. No job is worth that. No job is worth that. No study is worth that. No circumstance is worth that. No relationship is worth that. That you give up your prayer or you delay your prayer or you change, you know, you don't pray on time or you pray qada or whatever because of your job. Nothing is worth that. Nothing. Nothing is worth that, wallahi. Because at the end of the day, you're playing with 
the essence of your religion. You're not playing with, you know, it's not like you earned a major sin and you got some sins and, you know, inshallah, you'll make tawbah. You are playing with the core of your Islam. And that is something very, very dangerous because you just don't know what you'll die upon. It may be that you die at one of those times where you decided that you were too busy to pray and Allah Azza wa Jal just puts you immediately into Jahannam and you're just considered to not be a Muslim. Like that's, you know, that's a really scary thing because a lot of us, we have a confidence in our Islam. Like we say like, look, you know, I, I do my sins, I have my issues, but alhamdulillah, you know, I have my faith in Allah, I have my belief in Allah. But ikhwani, it's not enough. It's not enough. As-salah, as-salah, the prayer, the prayer. And you take it extremely, extremely seriously. And I know it's tough. I know some of you have jobs where it's very hard. Make the time. Wallah, even if it's literally just the time to, you know, stand and, and just to put, just to do that basic prayer without, you know, maybe the sunnah, without the dhikr, without, you know, and you're just doing your minimum. Even if you just read Surah Al-Fatiha, and that's all you do, and you just go into your ruku' and you do your prayer, wallahi, at least it saves your religion. If nothing else, it saves your religion. So please take the prayer extremely, extremely, extremely seriously. And be so careful with your children with regard to the prayer as well. The Prophet said, command them to pray from seven and discipline them from ten. And from seven years old, your kids should be five times a day, including Fajr. Seven years old, come and pray, come on. The boys, come on to the masjid. I don't want to pray. Okay, it's seven years old, no problem. You don't want to pray? Okay, next time though, you're going to pray. Yeah, next time I'll pray. By eight years old, you accept less excuses. By nine years old, less excuses. By ten years old, if they refuse Fajr prayer on time, then you discipline them until they start praying the prayers on time. That's at ten years old. Most people will not hit puberty these days until what, 15, 13, you know, between there and there, yani, 15, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. But that early they get disciplined if they don't pray. Because wallah, this is your deen, this is your religion. And there is no action in Islam that has that level, nothing. There's nothing in Islam that has such a level that it's considered to be the, the core of your religion other than the prayer. And after your belief in Allah, that there is no God that deserves worship except Allah, your basic belief in the Messenger sallallahu alaihi there is nothing that has, the, that has that position of the salah. So we want to just really emphasize this because it's tough. And there will come a time when holding on to your religion will be like holding on to hot coals, as the Prophet sallallahu told us. Wallahi, yani, this is something serious. And it's difficult, so bear that in mind, but make your effort and put your full energy into it, into, into doing those prayers and making sure that you get those five prayers uh, as they should be. Ibn Kathir said, the Prophet was taken by body, in body. And this is important because this is a refutation of Ahlul Bid'ah who say that his soul was taken because how could his body be taken to Jerusalem in the night? Well, today, you and me could get on a plane and barring, you know, visa issues and whatever, land in Jerusalem two and a half hours later. And people say, how could the Prophet, how could it be that he went? How could he 
have possibly gone to Jerusalem in body. It must have been a dream. La Allah. The Prophet ﷺ went in body. A physical journey. He said, in the correct opinion from the Sahaba and the Ulama, from the Masjid al-Haram to Bayt al-Maqdis, riding upon al-Buraq, which is a special animal, smaller than a horse and bigger than a donkey. It was smaller than a horse and bigger than a donkey. And this animal uh, was able to move at an extremely fast uh, speed. And by this, the Prophet ﷺ was able to travel. And then he stayed there and he led the prophets in prayer uh, as their imam. Then on the same night, he was taken up from that place to the, to the lowest he heavens in the dunya. Then to the next, then to the third, then on to the next, then to the fifth, then on to the next, then on to the seventh. And he saw the prophets, each of them in their place. He saw the prophets, each of them in their, in their place. Then he was taken to a Sidratul Muntaha and he saw there Jibreel upon the original form that Allah created him in. And the Prophet saw Jibreel, most of the time the Prophet saw Jibreel in the form of a human being. And the angels are able to take the form of human beings. So in the majority of times, the Prophet saw Jibreel in the form of a human being. And he used to come in the form of Dihya uh, Al-Kalbi radiallahu anhu. And it said that Dihya was among the most handsome of the Sahaba, among the most beautiful of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. And Jibreel used to come in the form of Dihya. And this is so famous that it said that one of his wives, and if I'm not mistaken, it might have been Aisha, she said, why is Dihya always around you? Why is it that I see him always and always coming? But in fact, this was Jibreel who would come in this form. However, the Prophet ﷺ at certain times saw Jibreel in his original, in his original form. One of those times was uh, shortly after the first revelation when the Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel filling the horizon and he had 600 wings that stretched from the east to the west. And likewise, when he went to Asidratul Muntaha, the, the highest uh, place in the seventh heaven, he saw Jibreel in his original form, the form that Allah created him in. And then he went beyond there and he spoke directly with Allah The Prophet spoke directly with Allah. Did the Prophet see Allah The correct opinion is no. He saw the nur of the, you know, the nur, which is the, the hijab, the covering uh, yani between him and Allah but he did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the Prophet himself said I saw light and he saw the light which is and as we know the hijab of Allah is nur is light and the covering hijab means a partition or a covering the covering uh, or the partition and that is that was between them was light and so the Prophet ﷺ did not see Allah Azza wa Jal as we can only, as human beings, we will only see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we die. But we will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
all of us will be given the ability to see Allah Azza wa Jal when we die. And this is the greatest of the Naim of Jannah, the greatest of the rewards of paradise. Faces on that day will be bright looking at their Lord. Uh, and that will be the greatest of the blessings of paradise. So the Sahih is the Prophet ﷺ did not see Allah while awake. Um, as for in a dream, that's a different situation. But he did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while he was awake. And Al-Isra wal Mi'raj was a real journey. It was a, a journey in body, and the Prophet ﷺ was awake, and what he saw was light uh, beyond Sidratul Muntaha, beyond the, the, the final. Uh, place in the seventh or the highest place in the seventh heaven then the author goes on to talk about the first of uh, of bay'atul aqaba al-ula the first pledge of allegiance made by the people who who came from medina and the beginning of setting up medina as this location to to make hijrah to he said wal bay'atul ula ma'athni ashara من أهل طيبة كما قد ذكر ومن أهل طيبة كما قد ذكر والبيعة الأولى يعني بيعة العقبة الأولى and that was twelve men from the people of طيبة الطيبة طيبة الطيبة is one of the names of مدينة Medina has many names. It was known in the time of Jahiliyyah as Yathrib. It was known in the time of Jahiliyyah as Yathrib. But this name has a negative connotation. And I, for my life, I can't, I can't remember at the moment what the meaning of Yathrib was, but it, it was a, you know, it was a, 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 not a good meaning, like a place of, a, not a good place, any a place of uh, some sort of misfortune or something. But I can't remember the exact translation of it. Uh, but... The Prophet ﷺ changed the name of Yathrib to Al-Madina. And it has many names. And from the names of Al-Madina is At-Tayyibah or Tayyibatu At-Tayyibah. The, the purest of the pure, the best of the best and so on. You know, that kind of meaning. The Prophet ﷺ used to give da'wah to the people at Hajj. And Hajj was a major opportunity that the Prophet ﷺ used to take to call the people to Islam. And it's narrated that he would walk among the people who came for the Hajj and say, Oh my people, say La ilaha illallah, qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu. Say La ilaha illallah and you will be successful. And this also shows us that the people understood the meaning of La ilaha illallah. And in generally, the Arabs, when they were told, say, la ilaha illallah, they didn't have these confusions that we see today among the Muslims. They knew fine well, la ilaha illallah, they knew that it meant al-wala wal-bara. Any allegiance to the Muslims and disavowal and disassociation from the non-Muslims. They knew that it meant abandoning the idols. And everything that is worshipped besides Allah and worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. They, they, they were... From the, the Fusaha, from the great you know, speakers of Arabic, they knew what La ilaha illallah meant. And the Prophet ﷺ would say to them, Say La ilaha illallah and you'll be successful. 
And they said to him, Has he made all of these gods into one God? This is something strange. They knew. They didn't have a problem understanding that Al-Ilah is Al-Ma'bud. Al-Ilah is that which is worshipped. And they knew when the La ilaha illallah, you know, they didn't say, well, we believe in Allah. Or we believe all of our idols finish with Allah. Or we believe that the end of our idols is with Allah. Or we believe that our idols intercede with Allah. They knew that when they say, he said, La ilaha illallah, this means no worship except to Allah. They understood this. And that was, you know, this is evident from the Prophet when he would say to them, La ilaha illallah, what they would say in return. So they understood very clearly the meaning of La ilaha illallah. There is no God that deserves to be worshipped. There is nothing that deserves to be worshipped except Allah. Believing in Allah is not La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah is not connected to believing in Allah, believing that Allah exists, or believing that Allah provides for you, or believing that Allah sends down the rain. La ilaha illallah is a belief that only Allah should be worshipped. And that's how Quraysh understood it. So the Prophet ﷺ would go among the people and the Arabs would come from, from all around to make the Hajj. Because remember, the Hajj is from the Sunan al-Anbiya, from the Sunnas that all of the Prophets practice, including Isa والسلام, Musa والسلام, they, made, uh, يعني they made the Hajj. As it's reported, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about the Prophets who made the Hajj. So it's from the Sunan of the Anbiya. And this Sunnah was still alive prior to the coming of the Prophet ﷺ. Except that there were certain differences. From them, among them that we can highlight, were the Talbiyah. Labbaik Allahumma labbaik. They used to say, Labbaik Allahumma labbaik. Labbaik la sharika laka labbaik. Or they would say, uh, they would say, Labbaik Allahumma labbaik, and they would say, when they said, La sharika lak, they would say, Illa sharikun, or Illa sharikan huwa lak, tamlik, tamlikuhu wa ma malak. They said, O oh Allah, Labbaik Allahumma labbaik, O oh Allah, we answer your call. You have no partner, except the partner that you have, and you have no partner except these idols. You control them and they control nothing. This is important, Juan, because it tells you that these are people who did not believe that their idols had a sulta over Allah. They did not believe that their idols were superior to Allah or had a control. They believed that these idols were completely under the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that these idols, illa We only worship them to make us near in position to Allah. But this was their talbiyah. They would say, you don't have a partner except the partner that you control and they control nothing. And from this is that some of the people would make tawaf around the Kaaba naked. And from the things they would do in the Hajj is that Quraysh refused to go to Arafat. Why? Because it's outside of 
Al-Mash'ar al-Haram. It's outside of the Haram boundary. Mina is inside of the Haram. Mina is inside of the Makkah, the, re- the boundary of Makkah. Quraysh would say, we will not go, yani we will not leave, we are the noble people. We are the people of Makkah, we will, not leave the, we will not leave the boundary of Makkah. And from this is one of the things that the Prophet ﷺ changed or brought back from the religion of Ibrahim. And that we as Muslims, we all go to Arafat. And it's not that the people of Quraysh uh, stay and then the other people go to Arafat and so on. But they did the similar sort of actions. They prayed to Allah and they went to, they went to Arafat, they went to various different places and they did many of the actions of the Hajj. Remember that these are a people who were still relatively aware of the message of Ibrahim. They still were relatively aware of the message of Ibrahim. Alayhi salatu wassalam. So one of the outcomes is that 12 men from Medina came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they accepted Islam from the people of Medina. Ibn Ishaq, he said, when Allah azza wa jal wished for the religion of Islam to become apparent and to provide support to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and to fulfill his promise to him, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam went out in the season in which he had been met by a number of the Ansar, yani in the, yani after the season of, of after the Hajj. Yani. So he went to present himself to the tribes of the Arabs and yani in the Hajj season. As he used to do in every Hajj season. And yani in this time, yani. not necessarily in the time of the Hajj, but in the season when the people were and when the people were, had, were traveling to Makkah and gathered around Makkah. So while he was at Al-Aqaba, he met a group from Al-Khazraj. Who Allah Azza wa Jal wanted good for. And they were the first of the Ansar. The first of the Ansar. Uh, he also said... When they went back to Medina, to their people, they mentioned the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu and they called their people uh, to Islam. Until the news spread so much that not a single house was there among the Ansar, except that the mention of the Prophet Sallallahu was being made in it. Until it was the following year. In the following Hajj season. And in this following Hajj season, uh, these, he says, in this following Hajj season, the 12 people came, meaning the number was less than 12 in the first instance. And there was a, a group of them, he doesn't mention how much, who became Muslim and they, they went back to Medina. They didn't take the bay'ah, any the bay'ah to Al-Aqaba. They went, they went back to Medina. And then 12 men came from the people of the Ansar to make bay'ah 
to the Prophet Sallallahu He doesn't mention whether there was 12 in the first instance and then 12 came back, but he kind of indicates that there were less. And from this statement of Ibn Ishaq, that there were an, a, a, a rahd. And a rahd, I think, is, it might be between 3 and 10. And there were, you know, there was a, a number, like sort of, perhaps a number around five, a little bit more, a little bit less, yani people. They became Muslim, they went to Medina, they called their people back, and this, uh, in the second Hajj season, after that, uh, and there was 12 men who met him at Al-Aqaba, and this was Bay'atul Aqaba, the first Bay'atul Aqaba, and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or, or They, uh, they, they made their, their bay'ah and they made their bay'ah as the, the, as the scholar said upon the bay'ah of the women what does he mean the bay'ah of the women bay'atun nisa the bay'ah that is mentioned was taken from the women uh, in suratul mumtahana I think I'm not mistaken, the bay'ah at the end that was taken from, uh, from the women. That same bay'ah was the bay'ah, the, the pledge of allegiance that was given in the first bay'atul aqaba, uh, which is, Allah nushrika billahi shay'a wala nasriq wala nazni wala naqtulun nafs allati harram Allahu illa bilhaq. Uh, and they said, so this is the, the bay'ah they made, is they made the bay'ah that they will not make a partner with Allah in anything, and that they will not steal, and that they will not commit zina. And that they would not c- kill a soul that Allah had forbidden except with right. Uh, and they uh, made a number of other uh, promises. And they said, and they, at the end, their, their final statement was that if we betray this promise or this allegiance that we have made, then the decision rests with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Judgment will be made by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the poet he says, وَبَعْدَ ثِنْتَيْنِ وَخَمْسِينَ أَتَى سَبَعُونَ فِي الْمَوْسِمِ هَذَا ثَبَتَ مِنْ طَيْبَةٍ فَبَايَعُوا مِنْ مِنْ طَيْبَةٍ فَبَايَعُوا ثُمَّ هَجَرْ مَكَّةَ يَوْمَ اثْنَيْنِ مِنْ شَهْرِ صَفَرْ He said, after 52 years from the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, 70 men came in the Muslim of Hajj, in the season of Hajj, which is authentically reported in the, in the Sahih. They came from Taiba, from Medina, and they made a pledge to the Prophet ﷺ in what is known as the second pledge of Al-Aqaba, Bay'atul Aqaba, Al-Thaniya. Thumma Hajar, 
Then the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah. It's narrated the Prophet ﷺ before that so we can understand how this happened. When the 12 men came to make uh, their pledge of allegiance, Bay'atul Aqabatul Ula, the first pledge of allegiance at Al Aqaba, they uh, were sent back or they asked the Prophet ﷺ to send them someone to guide them to, about Islam, any, a teacher, to go and teach them Islam. And that teacher was Mus'ab ibn Umair radiallahu an, the Prophet ﷺ sent. Uh, and yani, briefly we know that Mus'ab had gone through a great deal of difficulty. Uh, he had made hijrah to Al-Habasha. Uh, he was, his own parents, his own mother had him imprisoned in his home uh, and he suffered immensely. The Prophet ﷺ sent him. Uh, as a young man, he sent him to, uh, to uh, Medina to be an ambassador for the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. And you can see the return that Mus'ab ibn Umair got. Seventy people came to make the, the second pledge of Al-Aqaba. So now the Prophet ﷺ, he has the leaders of the tribes of Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj. In the beginning, there were some men from Al-Khazraj and the Ansara, two tribes, Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj. And the Jews of Medina used to cause them to fight. And the way that they kept the political equilibrium in Medina is that the Jews would kind of instigate rivalries between the Aws and the Khazraj. Because otherwise, the Aws and the Khazraj were much larger in number than the, the Jews. The Jews were a were minority in, uh, in Medina. So obviously, the way that they kept the, the, the situation going was to cause enmity between them. And one of the biggest causes of fear among the Yahud that were living in Medina was that the Aws and the Khazraj would unite and come together because right now they're fighting each other and killing each other all the time and they, you know, they, they kind of like have this hatred and what you see is you see that when Mus'ab ibn Umayr went to Medina and he gave da'wah to the likes of uh, Sayyid ibn Hudayr and Sa'd ibn Ubad and so on uh, these individuals from the, who were the tribal leaders of the Ansar, Islam brought them together. As Allah Azzawajal said, Allah Azzawajal said, Allah brought their hearts together. If you had spent everything on the earth, you would not have been able to bring their hearts together, but Allah brought them together. Everything on the earth, you couldn't have made the Aws and the Khazraj friends. And yet Islam brought them together. And so the Prophet ﷺ had what is known as the agreement of Ahlul Halli wal Aqd. This is important because when you come to the Shubahat of the Khawarij, uh, this issue will become, it's important to know. And I know I keep going off topic, but it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of important for you to know. And that is that there is a concept within the Islamic ruling of a country or establishing a country which is known as Ahlul Halli Wal Aqd. And if I was to give a translation of that, like a, a non-literal, but a, a, like a translation in meaning, I would say they are the power brokers in society. They are the people who keep the ruler in power. So it, it might be the head of the army, it might be 
the you know tribal leaders it might be the uh you know it might be the the big you know sort of economic powerhouses among them you know the people who by their agreement rule the ruler can rule this is an important principle and it will help you to refute a number of doubts that the khawarij bring when they talk about yani their any fictional countries that they establish here and there and everywhere and he, they they confuse this issue a lot so what the prophet ﷺ had in medina is he had the agreement of ahlul halli wal aqd the people who basically ran the city who ran the city the heads of the tribes of the aws the heads of the tribes of the khazraj certain key power brokers individuals who are basically when they say that a person can rule the person can rule and a person can't just declare himself you know today i'm the ruler of my back garden you know like it doesn't work like that and you have to have the agreement of ahlul halli wal aqd and that is true even in a, a secular democracy it's true and it what like let's put it this way why do the people in the country obey the outcome of the democratic vote like what makes people in england agree that this current prime minister should be the prime minister yani why don't the people just say no we don't like her we don't want her anymore and just come with torches and pitchforks you know like and why because of the police the army the agreement of you know the big people in the society the power brokers who keep her in power and you see when there's a when there's a coup in a country what usually happens the army and you know like the the business leaders and political whatever leaders they decide they don't like the guy in charge anymore and they overthrow him so the reality is in every system in the world you have ahlul halli wal aqd and as i said the reason i mentioned this is understanding this fact will clear up many of the shubhat of the khawarij understanding that this concept that what the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had is he had agreement from the people who effectively ran medina medina was was a country in of itself in the sense that it had its own political leadership in medina and they didn't have they were not linked to any other city or under the authority of any other city and in theory the leader of medina the leaders of medina were the heads of the tribes of the aws and the khazraj they were the people who held the power if they said yes that's it the jews no they were not because in reality the jews were they did not have political leadership but what they were doing is pulling the strings behind the scenes to make the aws and the khazraj serve their interests and that's that's not um that's not me being anti-semitic you know i'm not like making that comment it's, you know like jews are always in the background type thing and this is not the case what i'm saying is in this case historically they that's what they did you know they did not have the they, they did not have the numbers or the or the tribal links to run medina instead what they had is they just had the ability to kind of move the you know the aws and the khazraj to kind of do what they you know to kind of you know sort of serve their interests basically so when the aws and the khazraj reached a certain number they reached the number now notice the first 12 was not enough it was not ahl halli wal aqd it was not enough to say that the power brokers the people who ran the place would accept the prophet sallallahu alaihi to come and establish his state in that in that place instead when the number reached 70 and the people involved were the were the tribal heads set, all, all of the tribal heads of al aws and al khazraj and the top top individuals from al aws and from al khazraj the people who held the power the people who decided who could stay and who could go 
they became Muslim and they said to the Prophet ﷺ, come to Medina and we will welcome you as our ruler in Medina. We will give you authority over us. So in reality, where, do you, where did the Prophet ﷺ get his authority in Medina from? From those people, from their agreement, from them saying, come to Medina and we will give you this uh, we will give you this right to rule the tribal heads, the, the people who had influence in the society, they all became Muslim and they unanimously agreed that the Prophet ﷺ can have uh, authority in Medina, uh, of course as part of their Islam. And that is, as I said, that will serve you a lot, it will benefit you a great deal if you are exposed, inshallah you won't be, but if you are exposed in the future to some of the shubahat of the khawarij, uh, regarding their you know, states and what have you. And this will help you a lot to understand this. This concept of what the scholars call Ahlul Halli Wal Aqt, the people who have the power to appoint a ruler or to remove a ruler. And they are Ahlul Halli Wal Aqt. The Prophet ﷺ was then set up for the Hijrah to Medina. And people made Hijrah before him. Salawatullahi wa salamu alayhi. Because of course the Muslims were being persecuted. Many, many Muslims made, made hijrah. And of course the numbers in Medina just grew and grew. Until effectively, you know, the, 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 you can say the non-Jewish population in Medina almost exclusively had, you know, everyone had become Muslim. And the hijrah was, you know, in full, in full flow. People were making hijrah who were oppressed in Makkah. Why did the Prophet ﷺ remain in Makkah? Why did he not make hijrah in the first instance? We said that he didn't make hijrah in the first instance because he was required to follow the command of Allah He was not allowed to make hijrah until Allah declared for that to happen. And now the poet has reached the point of the hijrah. He said, then after this, yani after the second Bayat al-Aqaba, it was after that that the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah and he made hijrah on a Monday. So it was another, another instance where the Monday comes in, in the month of Safar. In the month of Safar. And it said in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. So Sheikh said that there is the, the opinion the poet takes is that it was in the month of Safar. And many other scholars have the opinion that it was in Rabi' al-Awwal. Ibn Kathir said in Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah, the hijrah of the Prophet was in Rabi' al-Awwal, in the 13th year after prophethood. And this was on a Monday, as is narrated from Ahmed, from Ibn Abbas, that he said, your Prophet was born on a Monday, and he left Makkah on a Monday, and he was given revelation on a Monday, and he entered Medina on a Monday, and he died on a Monday, salawatullahi wa salamuhu So it's as though Sheikh uh, Abdul Razak leans towards the, uh, the opinion that it was Rabi'ul Awwal and not Safar. And there is a month between them, yeah. Then the, the poet, he says, فَجَاءَ طَيْبَةَ الرِّضَى يَقِينًا إِذْ كَمَّلَ الثَّلَاثَ وَالْخَمْسِينَ فِي يَوْمِ الْإِثْنَيْنِ وَدَامَ فِيهَا عَشْرَ سِنِينَ كَمْ عَشْرَ سِنِينَ 
كملا نحكيها he said then he came to Tayyiba يعني المدينة المنورة and the Prophet ﷺ, he describes the Prophet ﷺ as الرضa يعني the one that has the content the, the, the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet ﷺ, when he reached Medina had reached the age of 53 years old so this is the 13th year after the the, the prophethood and it was a Monday so when he reached Medina it was a Monday he left Mecca on a Monday and he reached Medina on a Monday Al-Hakim said the ahadith are mutawatir that the Prophet ﷺ left on a Monday and entered Medina on a Monday وَدَامَ فِيهَا عَشْرَ سِنِينَ and he lived in it for 10 years until he died salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi kummalan kamilatan and complete 10 full years uh, as the, the poet uh, mentions Ibn Abbas uh, anhu said the Prophet was made a prophet at 40 years old and he stayed in Makkah for 13 years as revelation was being given to him then he was commanded to make hijrah and he made hijrah for for and stayed in Medina for 10 years and he died when he was 63 years old As for the Hijrah and the story of the Hijrah, then you guys are, are more than aware of that. Uh, a few points that we can just sort of uh, raise on the topic of the Hijrah, inshaAllah ta'ala. First of all is the benefit of Al-Akhth Bil-Asbab, of taking precautions. And this is something that a lot of people misunderstand. Because what they do is in their mind, tawakkul is just purely relying upon Allah and doing nothing. And this is not tawakkul, this is tawakkul. This is false tawakkul. True tawakkul does not involve you doing nothing. True tawakkul involves you doing your best and putting your trust in Allah. And there are many instances of this in the hijrah. From them is the fact that the Prophet ﷺ commanded Ali radiallahu an to sleep in his bed. And the Prophet ﷺ crept out uh, from his house. And the fact that he went off in, uh, the, in a different direction to the direction of Medina. He didn't head straight to Medina. He didn't say, I'm going to go straight to Medina and I'm, you know, Allah will protect me. Instead, he deceived Quraysh by heading towards the you know, heading almost you can say uh, probably you would say southwest towards the towards the coast and the coastal route it was a very difficult route that he took extremely difficult route but what it allowed to do and yes we know about the miracles during the hijrah we know about uh, the man that every time he approached the prophet his riding beast would sit on the floor and his riding beast would just sit down and he would just stop 
and that it wouldn't allow him to approach the Prophet ﷺ when he went to, to kill the Prophet ﷺ. And then from this that he, you know, he realized the truth of, of what was being, of the, of the message. But the point is that these miraculous, and we know about the cave, you know, the, and what happened with, uh, you know, uh, the second of the two when he was, when they were in the cave, and the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr. And we know, you know, those miracles. But you shouldn't think that the Prophet ﷺ relied on those miracles. Rather, the Prophet ﷺ did everything he could not to be caught. And then he trusted in Allah. And that is how you make tawakkul. That's how you make tawakkul. It's not by you saying that Allah will you know, give me this miracle. And you know, like some people say, you know, I had my house was surrounded and I just walked and said... You know, Allah will give you a miracle. It's not like that. Rather, you sneak, you try to get out, you try to hide, and then you trust in Allah Azza wa Jal that Allah will make a said, Allah will make a barrier between you and them. And they will not be able to see. But you don't, you don't ignore the things that you can do. Because Allah Azza wa Jal is capable of anything. Allah can do anything. But Allah has decreed in this dunya that He will give you these, you know, for you, karamat, or, or sort of we call them like mini miracles like that happen to us. And of course, for the Prophet, the full miracles of his prophethood, when you do your utmost, when you do as much as you can to achieve your result. So some people are like, you know, like, I, I can't get a job and I, I just, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm doing qiyam al layl and I've started doing this. That's excellent. But go and look for one as well. And it's what you are doing, you combine between the two. Your dua, your effort, your sadaqah, your, but you also, you go out and you look for it. The Prophet ﷺ took a dangerous and difficult road to Medina in order to make it hard for Quraysh to catch him. The Prophet ﷺ set them in the wrong direction. He said to one of them, uh, or he, when that, the man uh, accepted Islam, and he said to him, or he, he instructed him to, to, to put Quraysh off the scent, as they say, and to give Quraysh the wrong direction. So when he came back, he came back riding and he met the, the big party of Quraysh and he said, you know that the Prophet I have not, you know, he's not, he's not on this road or whatever. You know, he's not taking this road. So they sent the, he sent his enemies in the wrong direction. He hid in the cave, didn't sleep out in the open and say, Allah will cover me, the angels will cover me, there will be no screen. The Prophet took every possible measure that he could to escape Quraysh. And then he trusted in Allah. And that's how you achieve. That's the recipe for achieving something. Not because Allah cannot help you, rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have covered the Prophet and made him invisible from the minute he walked out of his house. And he could have taken him on Al Buraq. He could have taken him on that riding beast that took him to Jerusalem that night. And he could have reached Medina in, in two hours. But Allah has put sunan on this earth. Rules and regulations. And from the sunan is that you work hard, you do your best, and then Allah will give you the extra that you need. And even for us this applies. You know, Allah will give you karamat. Allah will give you special circumstances that happen to you that break the rules of the universe, yani Allah's mini miracles, yani Allah will give them to you. But you try everything you need. And when you're missing something at the end, and you got 50% of the way, but the other 
you couldn't do it, Allah will give it to you. But don't leave your share of the work and then say that, you know, Allah will give me, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm making dua, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. That's a beautiful thing, but work as well. Work hard as well, and then you will achieve both of them. This is one of the major lessons uh, of the hijrah. Also, the fact that the Prophet ﷺ, that the importance of hardships in developing a person's character. Because again, we say, why did Allah not decree Al-Buraq just to take the Prophet ﷺ to Medina? You know, it's not, it's not difficult for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He took him to Jerusalem, why not take him to Medina? There's an important role to hardships and difficulty in developing a person's uh, character and developing yani their, and increasing their reward. So the Prophet ﷺ has perfect iman, we know that. But Allah wants to increase and increase his reward. And he wants to teach us the value of hardships and the value of, you know, the value of tests and trials and the fact that these things can raise your rank in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the trip to Medina was not an easy trip. We also learn in the Hijrah the virtue of some of the Sahaba from them, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an. And notice when the matter of the Khilafah came, when the Prophet ﷺ died, what is the justification the Sahaba gave for Abu Bakr? They said, how can we choose other than you when you are Thaniyat name? You are the second of the two that was in the cave. And this, to be the one who accompanied the Prophet ﷺ on the Hijrah is one of the most significant signs of the virtue of Abu Bakr over all of the Sahaba. And we also learn the virtue of Asma and of Aisha radiallahu anhuma, who both supported, but particularly Asma, who both supported the Prophet in giving food to the Prophet and to Abu Bakr uh, on their journey as they were leaving uh, and on their journey towards uh, on their journey uh, towards uh, towards Medina. Now the author goes on to talk about the events of Medina. And I just want to take this time to talk about the difference between the Meccan period and the Madani period in the history of the Seerah. Because this is also important for us, Ikhwani. Makkah is a place where the Muslims don't have a state. They don't have rulership and authority. Note the Prophet was offered rulership of Makkah, but he refused. In the statement of Allah, they want you to compromise, so they will compromise with you. They offered him if he was willing to let them worship their idols one day of the year, and they would worship Allah alone for all of the other days, they would give him the rulership over Medina. He didn't compromise over Makkah. He didn't compromise. He didn't compromise. He didn't take it. The Prophet ﷺ did not have a state in Makkah. This is incredibly important. And the Muslims were mustad'afun. They were in a state of being oppressed. And they were in a state of being the minority. And being the, the one who is uh, in the more difficult situation. Why is this important, Ikhwan? Because Muslims today will experience the two circumstances. 
There are Muslims today that will experience something that is closer to Medina. Yani we will have like a Muslim uh, ruler, a Muslim country where Islam is dominant and where Muslims have the upper hand and non-Muslims are the minority. And there will be countries the Muslims will live in where they will be the minority and they will be oppressed and they might even be tortured and attacked. Exactly like happened to the Muslims in Makkah. And so Allah Azza wa Jal gave us rules of how to deal with the non-Muslims in different circumstances. So what I want you to focus on very important in the Madani and Makki period is that you don't think of Makkah as something that expired. Makkah is not uh, mansukh, like it's not abrogated. Rather, Makkah, the rules of Makkah, yani, uh, in terms of the way the Muslims lived, the way they dealt with the non-Muslims, these are applicable when those circumstances apply to the Muslims. And the situation in Medina applies when those circumstances apply to the Muslims. We're not talking about the Salah and stuff like that. Those things we have no doubt, you know, they, what was abrogated was abrogated. But the general issue of living in different situations, that's the first thing. And living under extreme oppression and severity. That it's possible for Muslims to live in extreme difficulty. You know that you have and what to do and, and the issue of making hijrah and so on. All of these things are still valid today. From the benefits of the, the, the Makkan period is how we establish Islam in the hearts of the people. The Prophet ﷺ did not give importance to political issues before he dealt with Iman and prayer. And this is the mistake of many of the jama'at and the, 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 the misguided groups and jama'at that we have today, uh, yani broadly from, from the ikhwan and those people who, who are offshoots of them, jama'at Islami and many others, yani, who have turned Islam into politics. Yani they have made Islam, its only goal is a political goal. And this is a contradiction to the seerah of the Prophet Because for 13 years, the Prophet gave no attention and concern over having political power. Nothing. His concern was Iman, correcting the hearts of the people, getting their aqidah, their salah, their, you know, their basic principles of Islam. This was what he focused upon. Nor did the Prophet ﷺ try to arrange a rebellion in Makkah. Nor did he decide to compromise. And if you look at these people today, you see them on Allah They are willing to compromise their religion from A to Z in order to get hold of a chair. And so I can sit on the throne. Like their founder said, we have only established this group to take the kursi from the rulers. And in these groups, this is what their founder said. He said, we have only established this group to take the chair away from the person in charge. The Prophet ﷺ was given an opportunity to rule Makkah. He didn't take it because religion was what mattered. He waited for Allah to give him the circumstances whereby he could take that. He didn't spend his time politically planning. 
You see the Prophet ﷺ going out and making political plans and saying, you know, I think we need to strategize about getting a Muslim here so that we can have political control here. We need to get rid of this guy so we can have this. And we need to cause a mini rebellion in this area so we can take over this. Abadan. Never. The Prophet ﷺ waited for Allah Azza wa Jal when he reached a time when it was right for him to give him that situation. And Allah Azza wa Jal gave it to him. When the people were ready for it. This is really important because this is a, these are groups that their, their shubahat in this day and age are very, very popular. And they're very widely spread. You know, these, uh, these what they, they, they broadly class as political Islam. Yani, these groups who, yani, their purpose is to overthrow the people in charge and to put themselves in charge. And the ajeeb thing about them is that, yani, like the famous quote says, that uh, today's revolutionary is tomorrow's conservative. Because once they get hold of the chair, it's not halal to, to do this anymore. Yani. And if you see them, wallahi, they're the most self-destructive people. Wallahi. They are people, they're evil people. And they're more self-destructive. Yani if, you put, if you give one of them a chair in charge of, wallahi, in charge of yani, a car park, the other one will rebel against him. Yani the other one will take the chair off him and sit down. Because there are people who just self-destruct. Because this is their methodology. And so much evil has come from these people, wallahi. To the point that the majority of, the, of, of terrorism and terrorist groups have their foundations in these people. And in the ikhwan. If you go back and you trace them back, and the vast majority of, of these groups that have caused so much facade in the earth and destruction for the Muslims and harm and hurt and killing and the shedding of blood and struggles for the Muslims and for Islam to be clamped down on in so many countries, all of them come from this, this one, yani this suit of uh, yani Hassan Abanna and Sayyid Qutb, yani who, who were the people who put this evil in the ummah and spread it among the ummah until it became the cause for most of the facade in the world today. If you trace them back, whether it's Daesh, Al-Qaeda, go back with all of them, you will find they all finish with Hassan Abanna and Sayyid Qutb. And the people who are with them. So it's very, very important, Ikhwan, that we learn how to respond to these shubahat. And we learn how to keep ourselves away from these shubahat. And there is no one who does not want Islam to be dominant. There is no one who doesn't want Islam to be yani, in a state where Islam is, is, the, is the dominant force and people are able to practice their religion freely. But these people, wallahi, they have brought nothing but evil upon this ummah. Wallahi. And time and time again, and they continue to bring evil upon this ummah. Time and time again. And sunnatun sayyah that has just continued, you know, week after week and day after day and month after month until there's barely a country in the world that they haven't ruined. Wallahi. From the non-Muslim countries and the Muslim countries. So it's very, very important that we distance ourselves from them and we don't get confused by the fact that they openly call to you know the establishment of islam or the establishment of the sharia or whatever it is that they name it uh, we don't get confused by that because if you know the reality of these people you know that any the the reality is that the sharia any and many of them any from them i've seen in the uk i remember sitting and i saw one of them and he, he takes out a cigarette and he offers it to his students he's sitting with like five six students and he offers each one a cigarette and he lights up his brothers we need to discuss how we can establish Islam. Yeah, establish Islam upon yourself before you establish Islam upon the people. And some of them can't establish Islam on their face. 
yani they struggle to establish Islam here. How are they going to establish Islam anywhere else? They can't, their wife walks around without hijab. Their kids do every kind of haram. And they say we're establishing Islam. You can't establish Islam upon yourself. You can't establish even Islam. And even your hand doesn't obey you. Allah, even your hand takes a razor blade, it doesn't obey you. How are you going to establish Islam if your own hand doesn't even obey you? Allah, if your own children don't obey you, your own family don't obey you. So what do we learn from the Makkah period? That you start with yourself and your family. And wallahi, if every one of us implemented Islam upon ourselves and upon our families and upon our extended families and our neighbors and our friends, what would Dubai be like? Wouldn't it be so much even better? You didn't have to you know, throw anything or overrule anything, overrule anything. All we have to do is just change ourselves, first of all, and our families and our friends and our colleagues become a bit more practicing, help people to become more practicing, help our neighbors to become more practicing, help our neighborhood to become more practicing. And you know, naturally, the society will become better. The issue is not about changing something at the top to change what is at the bottom. The methodology we learn from Makkah is you change what is at the bottom and naturally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will rectify the society as happened in Medina. So this is really for me in our time because of how widespread these issues are and because of these, the, the evil that has been spread because of these problems, learning the seerah has a big lesson for you. Because many of you are going to go back, alhamdulillah, we're living in a place where Islam is dominant. But we're going to go back to a place where Islam is not dominant. Many of you are going to go back to places where the situation may be very similar to what the Muslim experienced in Makkah. Maybe some of the Muslims are being killed, even maybe tortured, even maybe, maybe imprisoned in those countries. They don't have freedom, they don't have the ability to go anywhere. And you need to use the, the rules and the principles that were established in Makkah. Furthermore, the method of da'wah. We learn from Makkah, the method of giving da'wah. How did the Prophet ﷺ give da'wah? He started with tawheed. He didn't call the people to come with me and we're going to have a, you know, like we're going to, he didn't call to any, he didn't call to even, even akhlaq or even, you know, like not akhlaq, not politics, not, you know, not any other issue that he called to. He called to tawheed, to worship Allah alone. Because let's be honest, Ikhwan, if you, yourself, you don't have a good relationship with Allah, how are you going to have manners with the people? You can be false, you can have false manners, you can be like, oh, I treat everyone equally and I'm so nice to everybody and I'm so, you know, generous and kind. But in reality, if you don't have a good relationship with Allah, it's not worth anything. It's just, it's just lip service, it's not real. But when you have a good relationship with Allah, your relationship with others will be really good. Your relationship with others would be strong and would be firm. So the Prophet ﷺ worked on correcting the relationship with Allah. And you know, a lot of us say we know non-practicing people, we know people struggling to pray, stuff like that. Where do you start with them? Of course, you're going to tell them to pray, you're going to tell them to practice, but you start by building their heart to know Allah and love Allah. Because if your heart doesn't know Allah and your heart doesn't love Allah, you're never going to be able to you're never going to be able to pray. You're never going to be able to do the things that Allah commanded. Like when you say to someone who's not practicing, pray five times a day, it's like five times a day. Five times, I can't, five times, it's impossible. It's impossible to pray five times a day. 
it's just it's not but i can't it can't be done but when a person's heart is attached to allah and you tell them to pray 50 times a day they say why not because when your heart is attached to allah so you begin with what what do you begin with you begin with bringing the heart and, and attaching the heart to allah you still tell them to pray you still command them but you are aware that that message will take some time to reach the heart you have to get the heart ready this is from the things that we learn in Makkah. We also learn the importance of the Salah, as we said, because the Salah was revealed in Makkah, even though most of the regulations of Islam were not revealed until Medina. Now switch it. What do we learn from Medina? So Medina is a much different situation. Now the Muslims are the majority. They are in authority. And Islam is dominant. So now you have the introduction of jihad fi sabilillah. You have the introduction of most of the rules and regulations of Islam, uh, the zakah and so on, the hajj, the you know the fasting in Ramadan, all of these, and the reg regulations become many. Now that doesn't mean just to deal with a shubha that if you are living in a country where you are in a minority, you don't give zakah and you don't, and that's not the situation. But definitely you adapt the way that you treat towards the non-Muslims, the way that you, you know, the way that you uh, are in yourself, the way that you show your Islam, and so on and so forth. As Shaykh of Islam Ibn Taymiyyah said, the ayat that command us to be gentle uh, and soft with the non-Muslims and to forgive and overlook their mistreatment of us, these apply to when the Muslims are in a state of, similar to that of Makkah. And the ayat which talk about uh, harshness towards them and strictness and you know like those I'm talking about those who mistreat not those who don't mistreat any those who mistreat the Muslims refers to a situation where Muslims have the authority so alhamdulillah here if somebody mistreats the Muslims here you have a system you can report them and you know action will be taken against them if they mistreat Muslims here and if somebody for example uh, attacks somebody because of their religion or refuses to let them pray or you know, forces them to drink alcohol or whatever. And there are measures here that you can take because you are you're in a Muslim country. You're in a place where Islam is dominant. You know, so at the end of the day, you have that ability. But maybe if you're in your own country, you won't you won't have that choice. You know, you be you people are Muslims are being forced. They're being told if you pray, we're gonna kick you out of your house. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. So here, you still have to pray, but you you can overlook the harm they do. You don't fight back against them, or you don't you can't you know necessarily report them or whatever, depending on the place where people live. So again, we see that the way of dealing with the non-Muslims is different, and also we see you know the development of. Uh, the, the detailed rules and regulations coming one after the other after the other like detailed and proper uh, rules and regulations coming again and again and again this is really important because this happened uh, in Medina when the Muslims were more secure they were more able to handle those different uh, rules and uh, those different regulations but one thing that continued through Mecca and Medina is uh, are two, a couple of things number one Talibul ilm, seeking knowledge. From the first days the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet and the establishment of Dar al-Arqam, the house where the Prophet ﷺ, the house of al-Arqam, Ibn Abi al-Arqam, radiallahu anhu arda, that young, it said that he was a teenager. In Arqam, Ibn Abi al-Arqam was a teenager, young, a young guy. He gave his house to the Prophet ﷺ to be a secret center of da'wah, of learning. SubhanAllah. In the earliest days of Makkah, 
And some of the people who became Muslim in the early, early days of Mecca became Muslim in Dar al-Arqam. So seeking knowledge was not something that started in Medina. So those people who are living in non-Muslim countries saying, when I go to a Muslim country, I'm going to start learning. No. Seeking knowledge is something that was established from the very first days of the prophethood. And likewise, the salah. The Prophet personally began praying from the earliest days of the prophethood. And likewise, his companions, you know, within the first period of Makkah, they began praying. But all of the prayers in the beginning were two by two by, uh, were two by two by two. I don't know about Maghrib, we'll come to that in a moment, whether Maghrib, I, I don't recall whether Maghrib was three and stayed three or whether Maghrib was two and became three. But the, definitely Dhuhr and Asr and Isha were two two rakat in the all the time of Makkah. After the Isra and Mi'raj, they were all two by two. In the first year, the Salah in Medina became four rakat. And we're going to come to this uh, inshallah. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Maghrib was, was always three. Wallahu a'lam. So the author, he mentions this in the next uh, line of poetry, but I think this is a good place to stop because effectively we've stopped roughly halfway through the poem. We're at line 42, but the last few lines of the poem are kind of more like just concluding. So we're kind of halfway through, but we've also stopped exactly between the Makki and the Madani period. So this entire sort of class is going to be on the, the period when the Muslims were in Mecca and uh, inshallah next term we're going to begin with the Muslims in Medina so we'll hear about the battles we'll hear about the different circumstances the Muslims were in after the hijrah and the different things that happened uh, and uh, you know and so on and so forth of course and as we know when the Prophet reached Medina the first thing that he reached he reached a village outside of Medina called Quba and he built Masjid uh, Quba there then he he went and he uh, went from Quba to Medina. Now Quba is a part of, it's grown to be a part of Medina, but in those times, Quba was a, a small sort of village just to the north of, uh, I think to the north, I always get that confused, to the north or the south. But anyway, to the south probably. I always get them mixed up, so I, I, I do it every time. So I, it, it's, it's just out of, uh, it, must be to, it must be to the south, it's in the direction, yeah, Quba towards, must be in the south, to the direction of uh, yeah, because you face the Qibla and you go to Quba. So in the south of, uh, of, to the south of Medina. And then he went into uh, Medina. And the first thing that he did was to establish the Masjid. And Masjid al-Nabawi. And that also tells you the value of the Masjid. And the Masjid is the heart of the Muslim community. And the first thing you do in any community is you look for the Masjid. So inshallah we'll continue our discussion from there. And of course we know the Prophet Sallallahu uh, began living with Aisha. So at that time he was only with uh, living with Sauda and then of course in the early days that sort of concludes, wraps up that and then inshallah the rest of the issues in Medina we will deal with in the next term. Guys I've got a couple of announcements, they're pretty important. So the first announcement is we've concluded module 3. The exam for module 3 will be on the first day of module 4. On the first day of module 4. So inshallah, uh, module four, will the date will be announced. I, I know there's going to be a, a short-ish break because we're going to take the kids to uh, Montenegro for their camp, bi'idhni lai ta'ala. So inshallah, uh, we'll, uh, 
you know, uh, announce for you when the date will be. But the first day that we come back, we'll have the SIRA exam from module three. The second announcement that I have is that I'm running a little bit behind on marking some of the exams and homework assignments. Don't worry about that. Before you guys come back from module four, it'll all be done, inshallah, including any outstanding homework assignments. Before you guys come back from module four, it's very likely that I'll call you for, to, to, to come and read the poem. 100 lines, inshallah, or as much as you can do. So those of you who are memorizing the poem and learning it, inshallah, please be ready for, you know, around the middle of January, first, second week of January, roughly. We'll send you an email out. We'll invite you. Just, it'll just be a link that if you do want to read, click this, you know, click this, fill this form or click this button or whatever. And then from there, we'll give you a time to come and read. And that will be your homework assignment marks for module three. Inshallah, module four, whenever we start it, will definitely be done before Ramadan, and that will sort of conclude half of the essentials course, which we advertise being eight modules, and you guys will have done, done four of them. So just be aware we're running a little bit late on the exams, but those will all be done before you come back from module four, inshallah. Module four, I can't give you a specific date, but it won't be very long, like maybe, you know, be a few weeks, couple of weeks or whatever, while we get back from Montenegro, get ourselves organized and what have you and then you know we'll begin again inshallah ta'ala and we'll be beginning with the madani period of the seerah from al-ujuzat al-mi'iyah and then inshallah we'll be doing fiqh uh, which madhab i haven't decided yet it's i any i'm hanbali through and through so you know you probably guys are gonna get the hanabila but i'm i'm almost slightly tempted to, to do the shafi'iyah we'll see inshallah but uh, you will be doing fiqh madhab inshallah so we'll be doing fiqh from the point of view of the madahib, inshaAllah ta'ala. Uh, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Wa salatu salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.